morning. So there were two young fish that were swimming along together in the sea. And they passed an older fish. And as he passed by, he said to them, Hey, boys, how's the water? And they passed him and swam on in silence for a while until one of the younger fish turned to the other one and said, What the heck is water? So I heard this, I read this joke actually on the internet. It was in reference to the historian Tom Holland and his book, Dominion. Now, Tom Holland is a non Christian historian. Uh, who looks at ancient empires. But one thing about Tom Holland is that he is thorough. There's one word to describe him, it's that he is thorough. And thoroughness turns out to be one of the best qualities a historian can have. So when Tom Holland turned his attention to the Roman Empire, started to study the Roman Empire, he didn't just read the Gallic Wars and say, okay, now I understand Rome. He, he took several years and he immersed his mind into the Roman mind. He started to try to think what it would think like a Roman. And he expected to admire this group of people. This, this, they built an empire, took over the world. So he expected to just experience a lot of admiration. Instead, what he experienced was a great sense of of that there is something really alien here. There's something not only alien, not only very different from what he felt and what he understands we feel as a culture, but something terrifying. And he said, actually, you know, what it would be like to live, to actually live in the Roman Empire is different than what we think. We, we kind of, uh, you know, romanticize these ancient cultures, and we said, well, this is where we came from. You know, we came from the Greeks, we came from the Romans, and when we think of them, we think of, you know, democracy and, and uh, I, you know, Corinthian columns, right, the architecture, and we think that we're, we're just in that same line. But Holland found, just by immersing himself, the vast literature that we have of the, Rome, of the Roman period, that instead, what it would really be like to live in Rome in the Roman Empire, especially if you are not a free Roman citizen, but even if you were, what it would be like would be like sharing a fish tank with a great white shark, is the way that he described it. He said, you know, it was, it was, it was a brutal place, and we're not like that anymore. So we have a hard time understanding what it would be like to put ourselves in that position it's kind of like the, the water we, we swim around in now, we don't even recognize it. But he says, the question that people just gloss over, a lot of times in looking about history, they just pass right over, is the question, why we are not like that anymore? Why we don't have, why we have a certain sensibility about what the powerful should do and, and a certain responsibility toward the vulnerable, he said, where did that come from? Because it, didn't, it wasn't there before. And the Romans didn't have it. So why is it something that we just feel is like natural, that you know, the powerful should take consideration of the weak? And for him, there was, no, there was one clear answer, one thing. The answer was that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the religion that that spawned introduced a new idea of power into the world, that the powerful would give themselves, would sacrifice for
for the vulnerable. Because Jesus Christ was preached by the Christians as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but he died on a cross. He died a criminal's death. The one who was powerful laid down his power. And it was something new in the world that was being introduced. And it spread like leaven throughout the Roman Empire to change the world. So he wrote a book about this called Dominion. It came out two years ago. It became a bestseller. It was very influential. And I want to draw on Holland's insight this morning because it helps us understand something that we have difficulty with when we're reading the book of Revelation. And that is how we can enter into John's portrayal of the Roman Empire of his time as a beast. Remember, we saw this in, in chapter 13, that, that he's thinking of the Roman Empire as a beast. And, and even more so, how people of that time could nonetheless be tempted to worship this beast, because that's what he's saying don't do to us. So it explains a lot. It's really going to help us, I think, to understand not only the passage that we're going to read, but also our situation today. So please stand with me as I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 17. It's in your bulletin on page 12, if you want to read along. And I included there a kind of recollection of when we first got introduced to the beast and in Revelation chapter 13, the beginning of that chapter. But I'm going to start in chapter 17 there with verse 3. And I'm going to be reading verse 3 and then a, a little later in the, in the chapter of chapter 17, verses 7 through 14. You can read that first part um, earlier about when, when the dragon first conceives, has this new idea, and the beast comes out of the water. Well, here we are reading about the beast in chapter 17. Same beast, ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems and blasphemous names. All right. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 17, beginning with verse 3. And he, that is the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains or hills on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right. 
Okay, so first thing to understand this morning as we enter into this passage is that we're dealing with the same ten-horned, seven-headed beast that we read about in chapter 13. And recall, if you can remember, when we read about it, we determined that what John was talking about was the Roman Empire. He was talking about the Roman government of his time. And even in this passage, again, he identifies that. He gives us an identity uh, identification in verse 9. You know, whenever John says, this takes wisdom, like this is, this is a place for discernment, Let the, this is for a person with wisdom, whenever he says stuff like that, get ready, he's about to give you an identifier. He's about to make a, a very clear representation of what he's talking about, very clear identification. And that's what he does in verse 9. He says, here, this takes wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains or seven hills you could also translate in different translations, seven hills. And that's very clearly telling us that that upon which the harlot is sitting, these seven hills, is Rome. Because as Rome was founded on the seven hills. And then um, you recall that the great-great-grandson of Augustus was Emperor Nero. And remember, we talked about he was the head of the beast, maybe the quintessential head of the beast, um, he was certainly beastly, and you remember we talked about him. This was a man who killed his own mother. This was a man who, who kicked his pregnant wife to death and many other ghastly things that he did. And this is the headlines. This is, these were the headlines of, of the first century that John lived in. This was, the, this was their world, and John saw all this. And so he said, this is how the dragon, who couldn't stamp out the holy child of the woman of the son, he couldn't stamp out the Christ or the church that came from him, this is how he's going to operate. He is going to take the institution of the centralized government of the state, and he's going to twist it so that it becomes a beast rising out of the sea. So he's going to twist the state. It needs to be judged. So why in heaven... In heaven's view, is the Roman Empire such a beast? Well, I want to again draw on Holland's work, Tom Holland, the historian, non-believing historian again, although I think now, actually, I think now he's attending church just because of the profound impact that this study of the Roman Empire has had on him. But non-believing uh, non historian, he says, you know, Let's, let's just take the, the uh, area of sexual exploitation. And Holland makes a point, argues very forcibly, that it was Christianity that actually raised the status of women in the world. Because in those days, you know, there was all sorts of rights that a free Roman citizen had. And one of them was to use subordinates as he saw fit. So, for example, we have this uh, incident in our time, the Harvey Weinstein situation, right, where you have this man, very powerful man, who takes and uses women sexually um, who are subordinate to him. And we're horrified by that, right? We say, well, how could that happen? Actually, that's kind of the culture of uh, Hollywood. It's kind of nice out here if you guys... Uh, Enjoyable. So um, I had a friend, actually, who, who uh, worked in Hollywood. I used to talk to him, and he would tell me, you know, this is, 
this is what they do. <laughs> Hollywood, the, the culture of the people who are making movies in Hollywood, are, it's just, um, it's very dissolute, a very, very debauched culture. But we don't usually hear about it. But when we do hear about it, we're shocked, right? And we say, this shouldn't be. This can't be this way. And Holland makes the point that the only reason that, that we think that is something new in the world that wasn't there before. That somebody who has power shouldn't be able to use it uh, the way they wanted. Because this was something that the Romans took for granted. You know, if you were a subordinate, you could be used sexually. It didn't, didn't matter. It wasn't like the world was divided into men and women even. It was free male Roman citizens and everybody else. And if you were part of the everybody else, a free male Roman citizen had the right to use you however he wished for his sexual pleasure. And he did. You know? So if you can imagine this, not just like one Harvey Weinstein, imagine a whole culture of Harvey Weinsteins. That's what it was like to live in Rome at this time. Did you think about that? It was brutal. Because men no more hesitated to use slaves or anyone else for their sexual needs than, than they would be to use the toilet. And not just anyone, anything, actually, anything with an orifice, you know, was free game. And so Holland asks this question that he says, we take for granted. Why is it no longer that way? Why is it that we can be horrified when we see a man in this position, using his position in this way? Why can we even have a, a Me Too movement? Like, why does that make sense to us? that there should be a Me Too movement, you know? And the answer, again, that he comes up with, it's crystal clear to him as a historian. It's because Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's because the one who had power did something different with that power. Changed the way we looked at power, we think about power, and that's why we are. And because people went out and these Christians preached, you know, the Bible, which said the women were made in the image of God, just like men were. They had no lower ontological status in the eyes of God. That it, it, it spread like leaven through the culture, and it changed. It changed the Roman Empire, changed the Western world. But take the, uh, let's take the example of violence, okay? Roman emperors... Roman governors, not even emperors, they had a monopoly on violence because they had the absolute right to kill somebody, but not just kill them, kill them in the way they decided they wanted to kill them. So, you know, if they wanted to burn them alive, they could. If they wanted to, and they did, they wanted to have them tear, torn by wild beasts. If they wanted them to be crucified, they could. And this went way back to the beginning with Julius Caesar, who established the Roman Empire. And how was the Roman Empire established? Because Julius Caesar killed about a million Gauls. And then he enslaved a million more. This was the beginning of the empire. This is how it was founded. And that's how they brought order. And you follow that down to Nero, okay, who's, who's in AD 64, you know, he had, there was this fire that spread through Rome. You might have read about this. And it's alleged that Nero himself lit the flame 
Okay? But whether that's true or not, I mean, it was thought that he, he actually started the fire so he could rebuild Rome again the way he wanted it, the way he felt like it should be. But it, it caused tremendous devastation and death. But the point is that Nero turned around and he blamed it on the Haggioi. He blamed it on the Christians. And after that, it was cool. He, killing Christians was in fashion. And so some of them, he, he dressed up in wild beast skins and put them with other wild beasts so they were torn to bits. Others of them, he just uh, kind of doused with pitch and turned them into human torches for his parties. And this, this was the emperor, but it filtered down to the governors. The governors, the rulers, could execute people however they wanted in this environment. It was, I mean, this is like, you know, this is like the living in a fishbowl with a great white shark. And even it filtered down to the head of the household. The head of the Roman household, free male citizen, who's the head of the Roman household, could kill people in his household if he, if he so desired. Very violent fishbowl to live in. And that's why in the eyes of heaven, John is saying, this government's a beast. You, get, you start to get the idea, right? This is why this is so beastly. But this is not how Rome was viewed at the time. This is not the narrative that people ingested as, as part of the Roman Empire. You know, the false prophet that John's going to talk about, also the other beast is another name for it, they, the whole mission there was to give the media narrative that Rome was the savior of the world. And just before Jesus Christ was born, a few decades before Jesus Christ was born, Caesar Augustus was pronounced Divi Filius. Divi Filius. You know what that means? That means the son of God. Caesar Augustus was given this title, the Son of God, and it was, it was a narrative that he had ushered in the golden age of humanity. He had brought in the golden age of humanity. Now, how could people think that? Why would people buy that narrative that this was the golden age? Well, because war was over. Right? I mean, you had to kill a million Gauls to do it, but at least, you know, there wasn't war going on because nobody could resist Rome. So it was kind of peaceful in the sense that there wasn't war. And there was order, you know, and there were these roads. I mean, the roads were just great, you know? I mean, basically the argument was the trains ran on time. <laughs> Only it wasn't 20th century Germany. It was first century it was first century Rome. Just, it was the trains run on time. The, the roads, you could get on any road and go anywhere you wanted. It was fantastic. I've been on these roads. I've stood on them. They're still there, some of them. 2,000 years later, there were great roads. So people could go, so, go places. And there was order in the streets. So you see how it came on. And so in city after city, people were, would, um, there'd be the inscriptions, and these inscriptions would be pronouncing the euangelion. Get up here. There we go. There's a bus of uh, 
of the head of Augustus. But in, in all these different places, in the very area to which John is writing, by the way, the area of Galatia, there were these temples that came up. And this one is the one at city in Antioch, a temple of Augustus. And here's another one uh, with a very pretty girl standing in front of it. This is in Ankara. And this is just the remains. This Ankara is the capital of Turkey. It's a very modern city. But through the modern uh, city peaks the ancient ruins of the temple, another temple to Augustus the, the, that encouraged the worship of the emperor. And that dog, I know he looks dead, but it's just been a hot day in Ankara. He's just sleeping. But here it is, still around. The, the ruins are still there, these temples. And this wasn't top down. It wasn't like they passed the law and said, everybody's got to worship the emperor. This was bottom up. This was coming from the people. And the people were competing to build the best, the best um, temple to give the most glory to the emperor in order to worship Rome. And inscription after inscription, the euangelion, I was saying, the, the good news of the Son of God was being proclaimed. Does that sound familiar to you? The Son of God has come to bring in a new era, and this is the good news. That's what they said. And that is what John is competing against. That's what the apostles came forth and brought their message in, said, yes, there's good news, and there's the Son of God, but it's not him. It's not Rome. So, I hope this is creating a tension in your mind. I hope that you're saying, you know, how could it be when for most people, living in the empire was like living with a great white shark in, the, in, the, in this tank? How could it be that they, that they would worship him? And this is Tom Holland's insight. They couldn't imagine it any other way. This is the way the world was. This is the way life was. Those who had power were to use that power. And Rome, for Rome, that was innocent. There wasn't anything wrong with that. You exploited people that you could if you had the power. That is the way the world was. That's the way the world worked. And it was completely right in Roman thinking. So the temptation was there to feed the beast, to give it power, to worship it. That was John's world. That was John's message. Look, John's running example, right, was Nero. Right? Now, we know Nero, historically, was a bloodthirsty, unnaturally violent psychopath. And that's true. He was. <clears throat> But even in recent decades, historians have come to doubt that. They said, you know, I know that's what people said about Nero, but it, it can't be that way. Maybe this, he's just been slandered by his, his enemies, you know, and that's what they were, you know, some people who didn't like him said that about him. He couldn't be that bad. Why did historians start to doubt that without the benefit of Holland's analysis? Because he was so popular. He was so popular with the people. And it was the things that he did. You know, he had this passion for music. He played the lyre. And so he would have these musical events, and sometimes he'd participate in them. You know, he started the isthmus 
Um, he started a canal across the isthmus of, of Corinth, which changed the economy of the ancient world. He went over and, and said to Greece, the Greeks are free. He proclaimed the Greeks to be free. He went over to Armenia. He said, the Parthians are in charge of Armenia. You know, just tremendously powerful political acts. And people loved him. He would have these games in which, you know, he, there would be music, there would be a lot of killing, you know, which people tend to like. And here's a beautiful family standing in front of the Colosseum at Rome, um, actually, um, not the place where, where he had the games. It gives you a sense of the scale. They would have these great Colosseums. He actually did it um, uh, in, in the, uh, what's now the Vatican of Rome. Um, but here's a sense in the inside of the kind of scope, the kind of idea that you would get. And you could go to these games for free, and you, there would be this entertainment that you could have. And, and sometimes I even gave out bread to the people. So the people were like, this is great, you know? He gave them HBO, he gave them Netflix, and they loved him. So Nero was popular. So popular, in fact, that when he finally, you know, his sins caught up to him, AD 68, he was on the run, he got trapped, he committed suicide, and he died. But even after he died, this legend arose that he was still alive and that he would return. So if you look, for example, at verse 8 and verse 11, John gives this title, the beast that was, is not, and is to come. What does that mean? The beast that was, is not, is to come. What does that mean? Well, this legend, he's referring to this legend of Nero. Because once Nero died, people said, no, he's not really dead. And, and they were so convinced of this that three different imposters came along, three different doppelgangers, people who looked like Nero. One of them even played the liar. And they stood up and said, I'm Nero. They looked like Nero, and they got people to follow them. Three different times in the ensuing decades, in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s of the first century. Three different times. They almost got enough power to take the throne back. These imposters who came along and said, I'm really Nero. So that Dio Chrysostom at the end of the first century would, could say, you know, people really want Nero to still be alive. <laughs> he said, they say, he says, and, and most of them still think he is. That's how popular he was. And that's why in the book of Revelation, John is so ahead of his time that he is able to step out of his time. If you can it's, imagine, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine someone in that time stepping out of the narrative to such an extent and say, you know what, this is, this is not what it really is. I know it looks like the golden age to you. I know that Caesars are supposed to have brought in Pax Romana, and that's the media narrative, and that's what's really going on. This is really great. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And the only way that John could have done that is that he was caught up to heaven and he saw with, with unblinking eyes, he looked into the burning center of the emerald and he saw the way it should be. He saw what the king, he was in heaven. He saw the kingdom of heaven as it really should be, things as they should be so that he was able to come back down 
and look at Rome and look at earth and say, no, this is not the kingdom of heaven. This is not the golden age. This is a beast. Do not be tempted to worship it. That's a passage. So how do we understand this today? How do we appreciate it and enter into this today? Well, I think we need to allow John a certain fluidity in the images that he used in order to understand how to bring this forward if there is anything for us to understand today. Because I, I know how you read the book of Revelation. You sit down at one point and you say, okay, I'm going to understand the book of Revelation. I'm going to really get into it. I'm going to really understand. You get out your notebook and I say, I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to write down what these things mean. And you read something like verse 9 and it says, okay, the seven hills, the seven heads are the seven hills. And you write that down in your notebook. You say, okay, I got it. The seven heads are the seven hills. Then you go to the next verse, verse 10, and it says, no, the seven heads are seven kings. And you're like, and he's seeming to think, speak of a first century situation there, right? And you're like, wait a second, is it the heads? Is it, is it the hills or is it the kings? Which is it? Right? And then you go to verse 12 and he says, wait a second, the horns are the kings. And you're like, is it the heads or the horns? I don't understand the book of Revelation. Boom, you close the book and you don't read it anymore, right? That's what you do. I know it. Say, say amen, somebody. That's what you do. But I think if John were here, like if he were standing here, we could ask him. We said, hi, John. Hi. Nice book. Thank you. John, which is it? Is it the heads or the horns that are the kings? I think John would say, it's both. It's both. It is 10 because it is evil. It is seven because it is the fullness of evil. Because in this Roman empire, in this Roman regime that we have, we have the fullness of governmental evil. When the centralized state becomes its fullness of evil, opposed to the purposes of the kingdom of heaven coming. And then, so you get to verse 11, and he says, there's an eighth, and it belongs to the seven. <laughs> okay, so that makes no mathematical sense, right? <laughs> but what's he saying? He's saying it's, it's going to go on. There's going to be another one. And it's going to be the same as Nero. It's not going to be Nero. I don't think John believed the legend that Nero would rise again. But the one who was, the one who is not, the one who will be, means that the beast will come again. The beast will arise again. It will maybe not be Nero, but it'll be Domitian. It'll be again. The power of the beast will come forward. It will rise out of the sea again. And that allows us, I think, as John looks forward into the future, for us to be able to also recognize the, the, the eighth head of the beast is still with us. That it will come back again. The one who was, who is not, will come again. That eighth head of the beast, it's with us even today. So where is it? Let's, if we look around and say, where can we find it? I'll tell you one thing. It's not really in the United States of America. We have it pretty good here. We don't rise, you know, any kind of persecution we're experiencing here, it's sort of like Pee Wee League. 
You know, it's like midget football league. You know, we're not in the main, the main leagues like they are. There are 47 countries in the world right now where you can actively die for what you believe, for your religion. Those are the major leagues. We'll be the servants. When we die, we'll be the servants of those saints who live and die in those 47 countries. The revelation, great action, not happening here. And the reason why in the West is, again, to Tom Holland's point, he doesn't, I don't, I don't know if he brings this up as much, but the leaven of the gospel has spread through culture in the West to such an extent, even if you're not a Christian, that it actually has affected government. It actually affected the conception of government. That's why we have limited rulership. That's why we have in places like the United States of America these checks and balances now. Then, and, we, and we have distributed power among the branches of government. And we have limited terms. What is going on? The muzzling of the beast. The, 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 and this is true. You know, the United States of America is the quintessential example. And we can be thankful to God for that. That the beast has been muzzled here. And it's specifically because of the influence of the gospel. If you read the founding fathers, most of their quotations by far are from the Bible. It's not from the Enlightenment. It's not from the classics. It's from the Bible. Actually, two, three times as much as the classics. Because what are they doing? These checks and balances are saying, we recognize the eighth head of the beast is there, and we're going to muzzle it. And that's what we're living in. That's what we're enjoying now. So we can be thankful for that. But we can also recognize that even though the beast is bridled, the beast is muzzled here, even so, the, beast, the head of the beast is still there. You look at verse 8. Those, who lost are the, those that are lost are those who marvel at the beast. Those who give the beast undue importance in their lives. So what's the application for us? It's to understand government in this way. It's a good thing. But the eighth head of the beast is always lurking there. So be careful how much power you give to the government. Be, think about this as you use your vote, as you use even the courts, which are good. Paul used the courts at times. But you also have to realize the more power that you give to the government, the more the beast is lurking there. You're going to need to think about that when you're considering welcoming your next stimulus check or welcoming more programming. It might be some, some good government programs, but remember, there's always a trade-off in giving power to the beast, the, seventh, the eighth head. And on the other hand, you know, at the same time, you need to be ready to respond to the opportunity that God gives us to suffer. If you experience some level of persecution or some loss of your rights, you know, you should think about carefully your heart, how you respond to that. Because, you know, God always has that opportunity for us to suffer well. And we can use it. There's... There's some cachet to standing up for the rights of others, to standing up to bully. But there's also a great opportunity that God gives us to lose, to surrender power, and, and suffer well. Suffering well means crying out to God. It means loving our enemies. And it also means welcoming loss for the sake of Christ.
because the one who's coming, verse 14, is the lamb. The lamb suffered in order to bring the kingdom. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. But the way he conquered was by crucifixion. Crucifixion was the norm in the Roman world. That's what everybody expected to happen. And Romans took it for granted. And it was taken for granted until it was abolished by Constantine in the 4th century after he became a Christian. So the irony, the great irony of history is that we no longer have crucifixion in the world because Jesus died on the cross. So John is bringing our attention to this one. It's a parody. The one who was, the one who is, the one who was, is not, is to come. It's a parody of the real one on the throne. The other one in the book of Revelation. The one who was, who is, and is to come. And he is going to come. He will overcome entirely the beastly kingdom with the true government of the Son of Man. The truly good government. No more beastliness anymore. Let us meet this king of kings at the table. But before we do that, we're going to have a treat today. We're going to have a baptism. I want to invite Darren up to take us over for that. Well, babies, babies have been very patient today. One of your, one of your people is a, is a main, main star here. So let me welcome the Ware family to come and to present Luke for baptism. All the babies have done great today, haven't they? Yeah. They've done great. So, yeah, we're, this is, um, we're really excited to uh, just celebrate the Lord's goodness to the Ware family uh, with the presentation of Luke for baptism, and I'd say more about that, but it's 11.52, so <laughs> we'll be a little bit brief, but we're delighted. Uh, we rejoice uh, at God's goodness to you guys, and we rejoice um, as you come and present Luke here to receive the sign and the seal uh, of God's covenant. So this is what's going to happen. We're going to ask the parents some questions, and then Josh is going to come up and ask you as the congregation a question as well. So let me ask the parents first. Uh, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? I do. One of the beauties of baptism is it's not just about this family. It is about every family in this church and us taking responsibility for Luke here. So you as a congregation, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian, Christian nurture of this child? We say we do. What is the full name of this child? Luke Elwood Ware. Bring him over here. Luke Elwood Ware. We do baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray for let me pray for him. He did great. Good job, buddy. 
Let's pray for Luke. Luke, uh, Lord, we do thank you for this child. Uh, we thank you for uh, the gift that he is uh, to this family uh, and that he is to our church. Lord, we pray that you would be with him. We pray that as uh, he is now identified with you, uh, that you would indeed sign and seal his heart, uh, that you would lead him uh, in the ways of Christ, that you would lead him in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray that you would protect him from evil. We pray that you would always be with him. We pray uh, spiritual protection and blessing on this family as they seek to raise him. We pray that their church community, that we would be faithful uh, in loving and serving them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to present to you the newest member of Ironworks Church. Amen. Yeah, let me just ask you to stand as we get some grace together. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Yes, Lord, it is right to give you thanks and praise because on the night in which you were betrayed, uh, you did take this bread and you gave thanks for it and you did share it uh, with those present um, saying, do this in remembrance of me. And we want to remember you this morning as we proclaim the mystery of our faith in one voice saying, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Amen. Let me invite you to be seated. Uh, I want to invite all of, uh, I want to invite up seven commuting members of Ironworks, there about, to help me serve the elements. Six commuting members, excuse me. Uh, this table takes us back uh, to the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, and he shares it as the covenantal meal uh, for all those who believe in him, uh, who are baptized, and who are members of some church that preaches the gospel. Doesn't have to be this one. If what I've said doesn't describe you, we're still delighted that you're here, but we encourage you to use this time for prayer. We would love to invite you up when you're ready uh, to, to follow Christ uh, in these ways, and I'd be happy to talk with you about that following service. We're going to have two stations inside. We have one station outside. I invite you to come to the station of your choosing. We have uh, bread here. I do not believe we have gluten-free today. I think we ran out of gluten-free. Sorry about that. Um, we do have wine, uh, grape juice on the table, and then wine that you can drink from the common cup. Would you come and taste and see that the Lord is good? Please come.